This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, producing. The American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is on producing. It is one of a series that we bring each spring and each fall. The series consists of the performance in which the noted and not so noted yet, but experienced and knowledgeable people of the theatre contribute their services to the wing to talk about how it is to work in the theater. We do one on the play script and the director, and that is exactly what it says of the play, the playwright and the director working together. Today's program and today's uh, panel consists of a wonderful producing team that has been around for a long, long time, and it is on the production. It is exactly that. It is what it is to be a producer, how you produce, what the, the responsibilities of each person is in the production team. This is but one of the American Theatre Wing's all-year-round programs. Most people say, oh, the American Theatre Wing, that's the Tony Awards. Well, the Tony is a very important part of our program. However, for 364 days in the year, we bring theatre. We bring theatre to Saturday Theatre for Children, in which youngsters are able to see and make a commitment to go to see theatre in their own schools. We bring theatre to hospitals and institutions, to people who otherwise would not be able to see or be part of the magic of live theatre. And then there are these seminars, perhaps one of the most unique and practical seminars that I can think of on the theatre. There, the audience is made up of students, drama students of the theater, as well as professionals. And I will now turn it over to Brendan Gill, who is moderator and chairman of the board. It is not yet chairman of the board, but <laughs> member of the board of directors of the American <laughs> Theater Wing. And Jean Dalrymple, member of the board of the American Theater Wing. And they, in turn, will introduce this wonderful producing team that we have up here today. Thank you very much. <clears throat> this should be a particularly useful uh, seminar because what a producer is and how a show is produced is truly mysterious. Even to people who go to the theater all the time, as I do, none of us really knows that out in the reviewing world or in the world of the audience itself, uh, how many people are involved in putting together a show and how the, how the duties can be all brought together and meshed together and, and uh, something actually turn up as it frequently does uh, in a miraculous fashion at the very date it was announced as having come, come true. 
I want to introduce the, the group here before we uh, engage in a pell-mell discussion. Um, and on my uh, right is Richard Cedar, who's uh, a veteran general manager uh, and who has often uh, worked with Morty Gottlieb, our producer. Uh, right next to me is Millie Schoenbaum of the uh, firm of Salters and Ruskin, which is one of the agents that uh, I'm always telephoning, asking special favors of and saying, I can't go on Tuesday night, can I go on Wednesday night? And Millie is always saying, yes, that's fine, I'll see you at the box office. So they're very helpful in, in, in making sure that everybody is happy. Uh, on my uh, far left is uh, the young man who was so hungry and eating that bagel uh, is uh, Morty Gottlieb, our celebrated producer. Uh, <laughs> he would be perfectly prepared to be shipwrecked on any desert island. Out of his pockets would come food and drink ad lib. Uh, yeah, he is uh, among the hits that Morty has had over the years are Sleuth, uh, Same Time Next Year, uh, Tribute, and a romantic uh, comedy. Uh, I remember when I Re reviewed same time next year, and I said that it would uh, run forever, and I didn't mean that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and it will, it will run forever somewhere on earth. Uh, uh, next, to, next to Morty uh, is uh, Dasha Epstein, who, will, who is a vice president of the American Theatre Wing, who is herself a producer, has worked with Morty in the past, and has received uh, Tony Awards for Ain't Misbehaving, Children of a Lesser God, a very distinguished member of the of this theatrical profession Small. of ours. And uh, next to Jean uh, Dalrymple, my co-host, we have Mitch Douglas, who is a literary agent who represents Bill C. Davis, the playwright and uh, author of uh, Dancing in the End Zone, which is a play that is coming uh, to Broadway. And uh, so here we have all these different people, uh, all of whom uh, are involved uh, in, in a family of, of effort, of, of enterprise, and the person about whom it all has to revolve uh, once we admit that the playwright is the key to everything is the producer, and I think we should begin, in this case, with Morty, and he can tell us, first of all, uh, what he thinks a producer is. Well, the producer uh, is the man who has to sit there and wait for trouble. and. Uh, He's the resident psychiatrist, the resident critic. Uh, many people think that the producer is the man who raises the money. Well, that's one of his responsibilities. But uh, that's not the prime responsibility. In a way, money is easy to get. There's always money somewhere out there that can finance a, a, a play. I'd like to talk not about musicals, because I don't do musicals. I don't do revivals, and I don't do musicals. And I just try to do new plays from scratch. So. What a producer for a play does is sit around, once he's decided to do the play, once he's gotten the general manager to start negotiating for the terms for the play with the author's agent, and works out various other things, and the producer discusses a lot of that with him. The producer's job is to see that all the creative people are most creative and can push themselves as far as possible to uh, work out their creativity and get it on the stage. But on the other hand, there is one thing further that I think is the most important function of the producer, and that's to arrange the opening night party and see <laughs> that, that he can make the best deal possible with one of the smart places in town and get as many celebs as possible there. 
and get as much of the press there so they can photograph the celebs and get it into the papers and the magazines as quickly as possible. One of, one of the things, interestingly enough, that I know least about is the opening night party. That's right. You've missed a world. What a book you could have written. <laughs> you know, you, before, because you don't go to the opening nights, or if you do, you rush back to the typewriter and start thinking out your reviews. You've missed one of the most exciting parts of the thing. But also, we're not invited because it may be that we'll be the skeleton not of the Not at all. Feast. I have John Simon at all my opening night parties. <laughs> that doesn't alter my opinion of skeleton of the feast. <laughs> Actually, Brendan, when I was a child and I was first taken to the theater and saw certain people rush out at the end of the play, I thought to myself, my heavens, they hate that play. And then, of course, when I got older and became a producer, I realized, aha, uh -huh, I know where they're going. So the whole... Well, well you know why they rush out, why the press rush out? because they want to get a taxi as quickly as possible before anybody else. <laughs> the, uh, actually, the theater opening nights get earlier and earlier, and sometimes people wonder about that, and that is in part a function of the fact that newspapers go to bed earlier and earlier, and the unions have arranged the hours in a different fashion. In the old days, uh, you could write a review very late into the morning, one o'clock in the morning if you had to, but not anymore. So the daily press has to work hard to get their reviews and uh, you know frank rich does have to go back to the times and write very rapidly well that's why he and goes a day or two earlier and the others and go that a day makes or two it much better the opening night. that's one of the things that is interesting about producing that has changed in the, just the last few years that instead of the horror of opening night the horror for the actors the tension the terrible fear that everybody is out there passing judgment it is much nicer as it has been arranged, and as Melly helps to arrange these days, that there are often for plays three or four alternative dates. And uh, so the reviewers go on different days, and the cast isn't in that uh, terrible uh, pitch of, of, uh, of, of nervousness that it would likely to have been on uh, the official opening night in the past when everybody was gathered there. And it is true, like a Frank Rich will often go a day or so ahead of time, have, have a much better opportunity to write a serious review than in the old-fashioned way of racing back to the office. Weekly magazine reviewers like me have the privilege of having days in which to think about what we're going to say. Often we do. And my own experience in that respect is, however, that if one doesn't like a play, uh, that the longer one puts off writing the review, the angrier about the play one gets. Uh, one doesn't uh, gain sympathy for the, for the failed work, one loses sympathy. Well, for the I don't work. agree with you about the opening night, you see, because no, I, I feel that the glamour of the theater, and when I say glamour, it means not just the allure of no. maybe people going in dinner jackets, which I don't approve, and I don't allow people to come to the opening nights in dinner jackets because then the audience are looking at each other instead of on the stage. But uh, I feel that the whole larger-than-life excitement of the Broadway theater has gone downhill since the critics started not coming to the opening night. Also, and, and they don't see as good produ productions or performances at previews as they would see on though, opening night. The with well, the sometimes they may. But oh, they may. Even though the production is frozen, there's an up and a down yes. that comes in. And, and uh, to come to a matinee, which some of the critics are doing now, I think is all wrong. And I, I think that they're now staging it for the convenience of the critics, and it could go a week before it opens, too, if you're going to do well, that. Well, it is true, excuse me, that some of, sometimes those matinees, they may be a better performance that the actors are giving, because sometimes at a matinee audience there is a kind of enthusiasm that is not necessarily uh, spelled out in terms of the volume of the applause or the amount of the laughter at the matinee. But uh, I just feel that we have lost a sense 
as I say, of larger-than-life excitement event. about a whole event that used to happen in the American theater, particularly the Broadway theater, when you had an opening night, when you led towards the opening night. It isn't just a matter of the quality of the, the text, which you can uh, sense no matter when you see it, or you can read it, for that matter, uh, or the quality of the performance. It is true that very often the performances on opening night were not the greatest performances, although I can tell you about a couple of shows that were dying, 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 and finally the electricity of the opening night was such that it overwhelmed the press. They gave, particularly one musical, which I won't, I may be talked into mentioning later, got <laughs> rave reviews, and then subsequently it went downhill and eventually dribbled away after a number of months. But it was considered a hit because it got rave reviews, but it wasn't a very good show. I call your attention to the fact, however, that the people who say they believe in opening night, none of them is an actor. None of them is going through that particular thing. That's I think true. when you talk to actors, you hear a different story. I don't The actors I talk to <laughs> say well, different things to the actors. The larger the life stars, I know, yeah. love the, the, the opening night. I can speak yes. from personal yes. experience because yes. my wife happens to be, yes. an, act yeah. be an actress. And I find that she feels the same as what Morton was just saying, that they work and they work, and they aim for a particular moment, yes. as an athlete does mm -hmm. in training. And when they get to that moment, it's diffused now. It can be four or five moments, none of which can be consistently of the same level. So one critic may see a better performance, another critic may see a lesser performance. But that's good, and not bad. I think that's better that no. way. That's more honest to the material, to the play. It's not right. good yeah. for the yeah. theater. No. But also, there's an anticipation about opening night and the audience reaction. There's a magic about that evening. And the actors react to that magic because I have seen a performance not on a pitch where it's usually supposed to be because of a certain reaction of an audience that they're not really, really with it. So an opening night, when that audience walks in, and there is that magic about it, and the actors sense it, they feel it, and they do, I think, well, their performance is your, your tyrannical colleague to your left uh, <laughs> contradicts himself because he wants a great event, and then he says he won't let people wear evening dress. One of the reasons <laughs> we don't have events like that anymore, either the Metropolitan Opera or anywhere else, is because people come in blue jeans. Well, I, yes. I agree with you about that. One of the reasons I don't allow the, the uh, or don't want the evening dress is that, as you were saying before, the, the opening nights get earlier and earlier and earlier, yes. and you have to send people home to get into their dinner clothes at four in the afternoon <laughs> to get to the theater so that the deadlines for television and some papers can be met early, and people have to get to the theater at 6.15 in their dinner clothes. And uh, and that's one of the reasons that I, yes. uh, I say, don't bother with black tie for the opening night, because it then puts the audience for the opening night on this hyperactivity, which has nothing to do with what's going to be on the stage. It has to do with them getting from the office or wherever they are or to the beauty parlor and back and to get into the clothes and get to Midtown. And the show hasn't even started. <laughs> They're exhausted. Well, I'm glad I'm in charge here because everybody on this platform disagrees with me. What <laughs> <laughs> a fortunate situation I'm in. Yes, by all As far as lessening the tension for the performance, I think that this increases the tension in a sense because they don't have one opening, they have four openings yeah. or five openings. 
And there is terrific anxiety. There are some performers who will say, don't tell me who's coming, I don't want to know who's coming. There are others who will say, I have to know who's coming. <laughs> and as a press agent, you're stuck in between. What if you tell someone who's coming, and they tell the person who said, I don't want to know, where does that leave you? Yeah. Yeah. So everybody is under this tremendous, it's not a one-night tension. You're under tension from the minute the critics start coming. And so are the performers, and so is the producer, and so, are the and so am I, and yeah. so are the critics. Well, that, yeah. now it's all about wonderful, because everybody disagrees with me, but everybody disagrees with each other. No, 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 because you're saying the tension to four, and somebody else is saying, no, they, they can't get up to that pitch of tension, because it's dissipated. No, no. Well, well, that's, that's, it's, yes, it is Richard just said one thing, it you is, said another. Well, right. Right. No, no, you're, you're, you're not listening, Brenda. Yeah, no. Let me put it this way. I think what Richard meant was the kind of attention, the kind of tension where the adrenaline works positively. Absolutely. I'm talking about anxiety. Yeah. Medical, now which, we're getting some which medical Which goes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which continues over a number of days. Before Dr. we leave, I'd like to say one other thing. Why, why would we not wait a couple of days, as they do in England, for example, before a review comes out? Why not you let mean in France. And in, in England, France. they don't. In England, they do most of. They're yeah. now starting they, to, to oh. uh, do the, the next. I can, well, I can tell well, you wouldn't why. Wouldn't it be better if we had that? Same let the press say everybody would drop dead. Right. The New York oh. Times considers an opening an event, and they want it covered immediately, and they set the terms. But well, they go to press, as Brendan was saying before, they, in recent years, their schedule is such, they go to press at a certain time, the review has to be in, and the minute the paper is labeled with a certain date, even though the paper can come out at 10.15 at night and be on the newsstands uh, with the next day's date on it, it has to have the review for the play that opened that evening. And sometimes you can run over to the Times and get the paper at intermission time of the opening night, and you can pass them out at intermission, and people can decide whether they want to go back into something. I was going to say there's another psychological uh, point to the opening night, too, because until that opening night comes, you're still in the working process. The playwrights still, you know, maybe I can get that last change in, and the mm -hmm. actors are aiming for something. You hit the opening night, and it's truly frozen. You know, you can't go backward in time then. And that gives you a goal to shoot for, too, that opening night performance. If it's the kind of electric tension, wonderful opening night, you hope it will be. Yeah. I want to give an example of that. Yeah. With the original production of The King and I, uh, an hour and a half before the audience were let in, and when the cast were out for their food, so to speak, Gertrude Lawrence, the star of The King and I, and John Van Druten, the director, were still potchking around on the stage to hyper a, a sense of an exit of certain scenes. Now, don't forget, The King and I did not get good reviews, the original production, and they thought it was going to fold. And Brooks Atkinson said, let's face it here and now, The King and I is not as good as South Pacific. And they didn't know it was going to happen, and they were struggling out of town. And right up until an hour and a half before the audience came into the house, the author and the, I mean the director and the star was still trying to do yeah. something with the show as an example of what goes on. Yeah. I was involved with one of those productions that had a totally new opening put in yeah. the night before the official opening. It was yeah. a funny thing happens on the way to the forum. That's we struck right. we struggled manfully yes. through the yeah. tryouts with great, great difficulty. Rehearsed this opening number for a week before it was ever put in, was put in the night before the opening. 
actually magically transform that show. Mm -hmm. And if the critics had been in two and three nights before, they would never have seen it. Comedy you Tonight. Know, Rich, Rich Was that yes. the number? Comedy yes. Tonight. Comedy yes. Tonight. Yes. Written at the instigation of Jerry Robbins. That's correct. Who was brought in. Uh, as a favor to George Abbott and Hal Prince and Steve Sondheim and came in and said, you need a new opening, you need something else. And Steve sat down and virtually overnight wrote Comedy Tonight and it was... That's correct. Richard, tell us, because uh, I think you have one of the most mysterious uh, tasks in the theater. <laughs> what is a general manager? A general manager is many things, too. Uh, as Morton told you what a producer was like, a general manager has uh, basically the function of structuring the finances of the, of the production, building the budgets with the approval of the producer. And fortunately, when you're working with a producer like Morton Gottlieb, he knows, so it's very helpful to the general manager. Uh, general manager will negotiate the contracts for all the creative people, for the actors, put together the crews, try to work out arrangements for theaters in New York and out of town if you choose to go out of town. In other words, he is really the major domo of the finances from every aspect, always in conjunction with the producer. But uh, a wise producer who trusts a general manager will leave him that freedom to do what he has to do. But you have to work, say, with a lawyer about contracts and all on, that. On uh, lawyers and, and accountants. Agents? Uh, yes, Mitch Douglas and I have uh, But we don't use it with the lawyers because you have to pay them extra. I see. It's the lawyers. Morty is famous <laughs> for, for yes. a general a manager. No, judge no, of, a, of a penny and a nickel and a dime. And maybe yeah. that's why you live as a producer and thrive as a producer while other producers vanish from the scene altogether. Who knows? Well, it's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> but, but it's sometimes he, do, he does it with love and creativity, too, and, which and a lot of producers are incapable of. When, when a play is underway, when you want to start, then you do uh, the producer meet every day or every couple of days? Oh, surely. Or? We're generally in touch all the time. And how early on would you be the person? That, would you hire Billy? Would you hire the press agent? Or who does that? Uh, well, that's something usually that the producer is the one who picks his press agent as he picks his general manager. I was wondering how early do all these pickings take place? Actually, Mitch comes into the picture earliest of all, I suppose, is representing the the author. Well, we could take it in that sequence if you. Well, why do we do that, Mitch? You're the you're the you're the farthest removed before the producer or anything. You represent the playwright. Correct. Correct. Who knows that the playwright has a play that is capable of being looked at? Well, the story is, once upon a time, I picked up the phone and I said to Morty Gottlieb, there is a reading of a play called Dancing in the End Zone. And it was called Touchdowns. Touchdowns. It was called Touchdowns, and I would like you to see it. And he said, I don't go to readings. I think uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, it imposes a certain interpretation that uh, I may not want to accept, and I would like to read the play. He did that. Now, I've been sending Morty plays for 10 years now. I want you to know this. And he always calls and he says, now listen, this is a very good play. I like this about it, but I don't want to produce it. And then he's very specific as to why. In this case, the phone rings, and he says, I've read this play, and I want to do it. <laughs> and that starts the ball rolling. <laughs> then we start negotiating a deal for a playwright. We discuss the way Morton sees the show, the way he would like to do it. I then take, take uh, his uh, belief in the play and his way of wanting to do it to the playwright, put them in a room together and see if we all agree, and if we strike a collaboration, then we negotiate a deal. 
And, and then work together every step of the way. And then had you represented Bill Davis uh, for his previous? In the, uh, I represented Bill from the very beginning, his first show in New York, uh, Mass Appeal. Yeah. And how did, how did he come to you? He was brought to me by a very wonderful actress, director by the name of Geraldine Fitzgerald. She yeah. said, I have a play I want you to read, and I did and loved it. And uh, it was a collaboration. She was here yesterday on, oh, on our seminar. Yeah. But, but uh, at Milo O'Shea, by the way, I saw last evening. So I oh. felt very much in the family situation. Yeah. And but Geraldine, in turn, had seen Mass Appeal in upstate New York and taken an interest, and yeah. that's the way and Bill's you, career started. Do you represent many playwrights, uh, more playwrights than novelists? Or I represent both. Uh, my background is theater. Uh, I did a playwriting major once and taught theater on a college level. I started in books, and then uh, some years ago got involved with a playwright by the name of Tennessee Williams and uh, found myself in theater again. And now it's about 50-50. Right. I represent as many uh, playwrights as I represent book writers. Now, is it more anguish to representing a playwright or can't you tell? Oh, it's, I, don't, I wouldn't call any of, any of it anguish because hopefully it's always a great deal of fun. I mean, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. It takes more time to represent oh, playwrights. It's complex rather than it's more com it, No, it's, it's more complex because writing a book is an isolated uh, job. You sit in a room and you write your book. When, uh, when you're dealing with playwrights, you're dealing with directors and actors and producers and a whole host of problems that might arise out of the creative process. Now, when when, when uh, Morty said, I, I want to do this play, he hadn't yet met uh, Bill Davis. Actually, no, I knew Bill Davis oh, on a semi-social basis because uh, he lives near me up in Connecticut. What a basis can be. Well, I knew him as a professional writer you who happens to live near me in Connecticut. I see. Well said. Uh, so you were eager to do the play, and then you made it. Was it a matter of weeks before you made the deal, or days, or...? Months and months. A year, I would say. But, so I mean, why? Well, but you mean by the time I signed the contract? Yeah, why would Because I was chiseling away for a year. Sure was. Morty was looking for I two people testify. in the cast. <laughs> Morty, we very famous, right, for by having two people in the, ca in the uh, play. We were really negotiating about the opening night party. <laughs> How many relatives he was allowed? Yes. Yeah. But, but, but in fact, much of that time was uh, taken up with negotiation or with casting or everything. 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 See, because I feel the, uh, the author and the author's agent should know everything that's going on. And I always say there are no secrets in the theater. Uh, you know, it's, it's the smallest community there is. And uh, everybody knows everything. So therefore, I might as well let the author and the author's representative know everything before they hear about it in the John at ICM. And, <laughs> and we hear. What is there to hear about? Pardon? What is there to hear about in this? That suddenly in the middle of the night I think, well, how would What's-Her-Name be? And then I might call What's-Her-Name's agent and say, what's she doing now? Is she making a movie or television? So before I call What's-Her-Name's agent, I say, how do you feel about What's-Her-Name? Yeah, when do, you, now when, does, when do you get in touch with Richard Cedar if you know you want him for your general manager? Oh, you talk all the time. You see, for many years, uh, Dick and I shared, I mean, I had an office. Helen Bonfice, whom you remember, was my partner, and we did a number of plays, Enter Laughing Through Sleuth, and then she died. And we had offices in the Palace Theater building, and Dick and I were in the office. <laughs> so there yeah. we were. So know, when, and then in the case of the, this play, uh, Dancing in the End Zone, how early did, does, uh, did he come into that first year? You already oh, had yes, yeah. I don't know what. Uh, not several in, months Not ago. on a formal basis, but on and off. I knew what was going on, and no. happily, he'd done his work well and wore Mitch Douglas out. So when I came in to negotiate, it was <laughs> hard to wear out, by the way. And then what about, uh, <laughs> uh, at what point, ordinarily, in most plays, uh, if not in this one, when do you choose your director? 
Well, very often I like to get the director involved as soon as possible. Uh, but a couple of the directors that we were, uh, wanted to have directed way on had conflicts, and uh, so we didn't get them. And then somehow you fall into the circumstance. Now, one of the directors we wanted uh, to direct it and loved the play was Mel Bernhardt. But he couldn't do it. It was in conflict. Our schedule was in conflict with another play that he was doing. He was trying to work out his life. Could he overlap and do both? So he decided there was no sense. It wasn't fair to either production. So he wasn't chosen, uh, you know, uh, he wasn't the director. And a couple of other things happened along the way where there was one director who then uh, did withdraw from the show. And uh, when we were, see, we did a production of uh, this play, Dancing in the End Zone, at the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Florida. Uh, that's owned by the state of Florida. Uh, the artistic director is Jose Ferrer. And Jose, as we know, is one of the most exciting, memorable, wonderful guys. I mean, both as an actor, a director, and even a producer. At one point, Jose Ferrer had three big hits on Broadway that he had uh, produced. One he had directed and acted in, another he had directed while he was acting in one of them. I mean, Joe Ferrer's experience and talent is, is uh, endless. Well, Joe runs the Coconut Grove Playhouse, and he had read a, a copy of the play a year ago. I don't know whether Mitch sent it to him or somehow Joe got it, and he had always expressed interest in this play by Bill C. Davis. And Bill said, I want to do the play in a in an atmosphere somewhere away from New York where I can see the production there on the stage under non-pressure. So we said, uh, and uh, we all talked to Joe, and Joe said, yeah, let's do it as part of my season. And it was scheduled for uh, a month ago, and it was done down there. Now, something happened along the way when we were in rehearsal, and the director who was directing it had to leave, and Joe Ferrer, luckily, was free uh, from, he was acting in Life with Father at that point, and he was just finishing with Life with Father, and he took over the direction, and worked everything marvelously, and we did the production for four weeks down at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, and uh, Joe and Bill Davis, working together constantly, were able to prune the play, reorganize certain scenes. You see, it's a fascinating play that is not conventional in its structure at all and in the way the story is told. But at any rate, they worked on the play, worked on the play. And then at a certain point in the, in the third week, the end of the third week of the production down there, Joe said, listen, uh, uh, we were talking about what about uh, on going on to New York, as we had scheduled the play for New York. And he felt it wasn't quite reaching its potential. Very good. And by the way, Coconut Grove Playhouse sold out in its fourth week down there. Which, that, so that meant word so of mouth had to have been good. tremendous. And they have a very good subscription program there, but there are a lot of seats that are not sold on yeah. subscription. So the play was getting better and better and better and better. And he said, he was pointing out about its potential was even greater. And I called Mel Bernhardt, whose play that was in conflict months before was not coming to New York, and he rushed down and with... Pardon? What's that? Uh, and Mel Bernhardt and with Bill Davis and Joe Ferrer gave a fresh point of view 
as to what was happening and how much better the text was getting and, uh, from the original version he had read. And he had certain ideas about what to do. And we decided, with the, the, led by the author, Bill C. Davis, the uh, former would-have-been director and future director, Mel Bernhardt, and Joe Ferrer, to let's not push this production together because it has such great potential. Why do a play that's 80% there? That phrase, 80%, was told to me by an important executive and vice president of one of the major movie studios who had seen the play, and the studios are interested in the movies, uh, in the movie rights of this play. Why settle for 80% when you have one of the most talented writers alive today for the theater, who I think Bill Davis is going to be one of the most important playwrights whose future plays are going to be up there with the majors someday. And why settle for 80% when they could go back to the drawing board with Mel's fresh point of view, and Bill's desire to, to improve and rewrite. I've come across very few playwrights in my life who love rewriting, and Bill C. Davis is not opposed to rewriting if the thoughts sink in properly. So we decided not to open in a few days in New York, but to, put, to postpone the production and let the author sit down and take advantage of all these creative thoughts that have been developing in the last the value of being out of time? That's right. Out of time. That's very true. And I think that's the important thing, and that's something that we ought to discuss here sure. now, is going out of time. Can I ask something? Sure. Uh, did you have to pay for the production, or was it all paid for by no, Coconut Grove? That, that was Grove? taken by the, uh, by the Coconut Grove, like one of their productions. So. You see, <laughs> well, no, but, but one of the things is that they, this past season, they had a marvelous group of productions. They started with Light Up the Sky with some wonderful actors. And, and Wait, we've uh, got to get on. What's that? Let's go on to what oh, we're talking. Oh, well, I just want to answer uh, and see him. <laughs> they, but they've been asked why they don't do new plays, and they do new plays once a year or so. They did a, a Paul Zindel play a year ago. So they wanted to do a new play in addition to doing Life with Father and a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum in Canada Hunting. Yeah, yeah. I think it sort of brings us to the point what Morty did out of town, which was, I think, marvelous, and, and the exposure that you have. Lots of people don't have that opportunity to do it, and I think that would bring us into to the question of workshops, which is happening today, and I think a very beneficial point in the theater for a producer, because the economical end of taking a show out of town, as we used to do years ago, taking it to Boston, taking it to Chicago, and working on a show there before you bring it into New York is no longer viable because of the high expenses and the problems that you have taking out a show out of, out of town is alleviated by now by the less co the cost of doing a workshop in New York, which is still relatively expensive, but you get a look at the show, you get a feel for the show, and when a show is in workshop, they stay in workshop for a while, take the show out of workshop, and then go and work on them again. So in essence, what Morty is saying is being done not in workshop here in New York at Michael Bennett's studio or another place, but being done out of town. Uh, Joe Stein yesterday, if you remember, uh, said that, that a workshop production of a new musical would cost $250,000. Isn't that amazing? amazing. For a workshop. A workshop. We, we, we thought, I would have thought 20000 or something. No, that's amazing. That's what it used to cost. Well, when you yeah. consider that an off-Broadway production these days has to be capitalized for $300,000. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, uh, bonds, deposits, contingencies, and, and a preparation for the advertising about that? campaign. When you just don't 
where do the bonds deposits and all of those things go in? Give me a percentage. Give me oh, what the general manager told us. Right. <laughs> well, uh, your bonds uh, also, it, it varies from show to show. But I would say, uh, Morty can, off the top of my head, at least 30% of your budget goes into those returnable yes, items, which are theater deposits, deposits with all the unions, advances, uh, against royalties to the creators. It's people. more than 30%, because out of the $300,000 capitalization of this production, uh, more than $100,000 was in bonds to the theater, deposits with the unions and uh, deposits yep. vice yep. versa, and the contingency in case you have a nervous hit and you want to stay alive. And Dick and I can talk about a nervous hit that we once did called uh, The Killing of Sister George, which got unanimous pans, less one. Yet it ran through the season, won an, a Tony Award for its star as the best performance of the year, had a movie sale as a result of it, and the money still comes in. <laughs> I toured for a year with Claire Trevor. And paid and, off in four and a half weeks. Yeah. Yeah. But Dick, so, when Morty yeah. is saying $300,000 as a budget That's, for the show, that is off-Broadway, and I think we have to clarify. Well, we said we still to walk with that. But the point is, it's <laughs> three hundred thousand for off Broadway, and more than a hundred thousand is in these things that are not being spent before you get the curtain up. But to take that same show, and I just did a show off Broadway called Weekend Near Madison, which I did down at the Astor Place Theater, and producing on Broadway. The differences, which I learned, are tremendous. Producing on Broadway and off Broadway, as far as costs are concerned, bonds are concerned, dealing with equity, all of the costs more than double when you take a show, or triple even when you take a show, the same show, and say, take it and put it on Broadway. Instead of doing it off, yes. Did your Children of a Lesser God, uh, did that grow as a play in something like the way Morty's been talking about it? Well, Children of a Lesser God was done at the uh, Amundsen out in California first at the Mark Taper. Gordon Davis, that's right, the Mark Taper. And then it changed as it came east? We had some changes. There were some changes that were put into the play that were that were done when we brought it here on Broadway. But basically it stayed the same. We saw it out there. I co-produced that. Because we, we were talking with uh, Lanford Wilson yesterday about how closely he works with Marshall Mason, for example, and how that, that really is a, a collaborative effort that, that produces right. well, great Gordon, and brings that potential. When you say 80%, when, when Lanford Wilson gets a play up to 90%, it is Lanford. because he's been working so closely with all yes. those comrades. They're all comrades. Right. Well, Gordon Davidson directed it in California at the Mark Taper, and then, of course, he came back here and did it. It really seems like too. an ideal that was talked about yesterday on the pre-production talks and planning and being together that goes on in, with uh, Marshall Mason and Lanford. We, don't, we can't afford to do that unless you have almost a national theater or a referee theater. But, but that seems to be the ideal. And you, get to work with the, you get to work with friends. You, with, yeah. you, an awful lot of trust gets built up. Well, so surely. well, what I was saying before about this being a very small business and everybody knows everything, uh, I don't like working necessarily with people whom I don't know because uh, I want them to know that when I'm yelling at them, I'm not yelling at them, I'm yelling at the world. Yeah. <laughs> That's right? That's the easiest cop out I ever After working with Morty, I sometimes he yells at like them. You're yelling at them, Morty. I'm yelling at myself. I think we're going to get to Millie. I don't know whether we have time. I just wanted, Isabel, I just wanted to bring up one other. Uh, situation. Morty, who has the most wonderful following group of people who have been investors of Morty's for a long time, and he's, he, they're his friends again and close friends and believe in him, which I hope, which every producer hopes to have. The advantage of doing a workshop in New York as opposed to doing a play in Florida at the Coconut Grove, uh, 
when you do a workshop, I think when the workshop is ready or practically ready, you invite people to come down to see it. So if a show is costing $3 million, $4 million to do, to do it, and a producer is looking for investors, they certainly ask those people to come to take a look at the show, and hopefully they will have them as future investors or investors in the show. So it works that way also. But also I think there's a danger there because yes. people yes. come out and say, well, I saw oh, it yes. and, uh, you know, it, right. it needs yeah, a lot of work. It's, it's the same yeah. as letting an investor read that. a script. Yeah. Yes. Because so. most people don't know how to read scripts, including producers <laughs> and, uh, and uh, people who work in the theater. They, sure. Not everybody knows how to take the words and project, especially a script that has not been honed down, that has you know, not run its course in preparation. And you have the script there. And similarly, when they go to a workshop, they can't project what's going to be pruned and what's going to right. be developed. Yeah. And it, don't forget Absolutely. some of its compromise and some of the casting is compromised. Before we take a break, I just have to say one more thing on, on the uniqueness of, of Morty Gottlieb. I think he is the only producer that handed out the, to the investors on the opening night party their royalty checks. Not royalty, their investors don't get royalties. On the opening night party of tribute. I think it was the most extraordinary thing that has ever happened. We're now going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue. I, I, I think we're too soon no. for a break, are we? Well, well, what kind of break? So, well, it's five to talk. twelve. We're still talking now. Tim, Tim we said, five, I was five. just told there yeah, that we're taking five minutes that we're, we're, we should take Is that for you now. reasons? <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> Had you ever done that before? Was that Taking a break? No. Paid back investments. No, it's the only time I think in, uh, in the Broadway theatrical history that the investors would paid their money back on opening night. Some shows there was one Julie Harris play back about 25 years ago where they toured and made the money back but didn't return the investment. They had recouped the investment. I think they came to me, or maybe they didn't come to me. I can't remember the detail or which the play was. There have now and then been shows that may have recouped its money but couldn't return it yet because they still had some of the money tied up in the bonds yeah. and deposits and contingencies. And, and, and then was it because part? you made yeah. profits out of town? Yeah, a number of things. I try to keep the costs down when you're out of town. And the uh, Bernard Slade, who wrote Tribute, took a royalty of $750 a week, which is part of the Dramatist Guild Agreement if the author wants to abide by the basic terms of the Dramatist Guild Agreement. And uh, Jack Lemon took certain reductions, and we hammered away at the theaters at the Colonial in Boston and the uh, Royal Alexandra in Toronto. We played seven and a half weeks out of town, including the previews pre-opening in Boston. Uh, uh, we figured we're going to do well. Let's try to do very well. And the reviews were great in both the cities, and we sold out for the four weeks at the uh, uh, Royal Alex in Toronto, and we recouped a lot of profit. Now. In addition to that, we made enough profit to pay back the investors, but we also made a pre-production movie deal, but we didn't get the money until like three weeks after we had opened. So I knew in addition to having made enough profit to pay back the investors, and even a little more, and we could pay them back, we would get our share of million dollars coming along. On a movie deal, do you have to 
have certain amount of performances. Yes. You have to I mean, run. You well, let Mitch take it away because it does vary according to different right. contracts. It varies, but traditionally under dramatist guild, you have to run twenty-one fully paid performances before you become completely vested. That is the producer. twenty-one in New York. Twenty-one in New York. Twenty-one in New York before before the uh, producer gets his full share. That includes previews. Includes previews. Yeah, no, it's ten, usually ten, limited ten, to ten. Ten, 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 ten. ten previews is the maximum of the 21. Uh, the one thing we didn't ask is how early on did Millie get into the picture? When, when Before I've read the play. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you always no, I'm morning? always in touch with I think we have to get back to Millie afterwards. <laughs> right. Now we can just relax for a minute or two and please don't See what away. Millie, you right caused relaxation. Just <laughs> <laughs> say my name and everybody leaves. <laughs> <laughs> We are continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I want to get back to our discussion with Morton Gottlieb and the group of people that you see sitting here now on what it is to be a producer, what goes into the production, and how it is to work in the theatre from the producer's point of view. Morty and Brendan Gill, I think was at the, Brendan, our co-moderator, was about to ask Millie on what her role was as public relations and publicist in the theater. Would you like to continue that? Millie, <laughs> doctor, well-known world authority oh, on stress, me. strain, fear, and trembling. <laughs> Tell us how, how you work and what you do in your work. I try to stay out of the way so I don't get blamed for a lot of things. <laughs> that's Harvey no. talk. No, yeah. no, no, that's not true. What I try to do is, first of all, working with Morty as a press agent is very easy on one hand because Morty knows about being a press agent. So he'll call up and give me a lot of good ideas. On the other hand, he wants to know why I haven't gotten other ideas, a lot of ideas, also about first night parties. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what's important about being a press agent for a play is the way the play is presented and to make sure that the way the play is presented is the way the author would like it presented, the way the director would like it presented, the way the producer would like it presented, so that we all are working on the same project. So, well, and among other things, perfectly legitimately, you seek to get stories in newspapers. Seek to get stories stir up interest in this absolutely in advance. how early would be the first known say of, uh, of uh, dancing in the end zone would that have come into you must keep a scrapbook did you have a reference to no, that I have, well uh, six months ago it, see sometimes it depends sometimes you announce it six months in advance sometimes you wait it, it varies on the production for two years that's right uh, many shows you hear about for five years, yeah. and suddenly you say, oh, that'll never happen. Suddenly it happens, or they drift away. But Morty's plays generally happen, or, or always happen, in my experience, and yet it depends on when you send out the release. Uh, when you have, I think, your key people signed is when you send out your first release, and what you try to do is send a release out with as much information, we call it a reader, so that the press, a reader, so that the press getting it knows a little of the description of the play, uh, a little about the people that have already been signed, short biographical notes, and whatever uh, real data you have about the theater, uh, the uh, uh, projected opening night, uh, previews, etc. Uh, prices. 
How do you get uh, how do you get that the piece of the Sunday paper on the front page of the of the drama section? Well, you start by calling Bart breakfast and praying. <laughs> and do you think of the writer? Do you talk? Do you do you sometimes know sometimes something? sometimes yes. Sometimes there's a writer who will call you. There was a famous and say, president. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, very I'm, interested in doing this. There was a famous press agent in the old days named Dick Maney. Oh, who spent yes. much of his time writing pieces oh. under, the, under the names of various actors and actresses. He well. was outrageous. And he knew words in, in the English language that no actor or actress living knew but they would appear under the person's name unchallengeably. Yes, he's quite a legend. But that was an old-fashioned uh, fellow. Yes. That doesn't happen much, I gather, no. anymore. No. But no. you do. It is nice to get those, that Sunday piece. One then. wants it. And who chooses Al Hirschfeld? Who says uh, Al? The Times. And, and you court the Times, hoping that Al will be given that assignment. Sure, yeah. yeah. And how do you court the Times? Oh, you can't really court the Times. You court the Times by drawing. You try to present what you think are uh, uh, readable, readable so material. Uh, yes. You know, or you suggest a certain angle and a point of view of a play. And Al will go out of town. He draws his caricatures yeah. sometimes if you're in Philadelphia or right. Boston. Well, or whatever. we have now and then had Al Hirschfeld do the cover. I mean, we, ha we hired him to do the, uh, the drawing of Jack Lemmon, the tribute. I hired him to do, uh, Dick and I did, uh, when we did Lovers by Brian Friel with Art Carney. And we had him draw Art Carney. And actually what he did with Art Carney was he took an old drawing that he had of Art Carney and just aged it. <laughs> and we, we discussed this with him. We said, just take that old one and put one line. <laughs> and there is this marvelous profile of Art Connie on the cover and on the, uh, a poster and everything of Lovers. And I think he used it again. I think Art used it again. In case anybody in the audience could possibly not know, Al Hirschfeld is the greatest living caricaturist yes. and has been for 60 years an absolute master. More than caricaturist. He's the greatest historian of the American theater. If you look at those books of his, it tells you everything about 60 years of the American theater, just looking at those drawings of his and telling you. Uh, and his daughter's it. name is old. Yes, Dina four times, five times. There is a wonderful story. Can we divert just to Al Hirschfeld a second? I'm okay. sorry, but there's. Uh, there, uh, I, I can't say anything short. So, I there. know. Now, uh, somebody like Steve Sondheim or whoever it was played a game one time where he had all Al Hirschfeld drawings on the wall, and at the party you had to say who was and what play this was and who the stars were, and then you had a hand in your ballot. And Henry Gettle, who now runs TDF, said and there was this drawing of a play called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, starring Frederick March and Florence Eldridge. And there was a thing of a coffin and uh, the characters drawn by Al Hirschfeld. And Hank Gettle said, now, who was in the coffin? I want that question asked. <laughs> Nobody got it. It was Hank Gettle, who was the second assistant stage manager on the show, and he was in the coffin, <laughs> which was drawn by Al Hirschfeld. A great man. Well, you've never been in the coffin, I assume. What is the most extreme task I, you've Not that I'm aware of. Maybe in another life I was. <laughs> Can I interrupt and say something about Dick Cedar, who's been here as a general manager? But Dick Cedar is also a producer, and produced Taking My Turn, one of the most marvelous shows that, you know, and it ran yes. for Down many, 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 yes. many months. And well, he's a producer of other things. That was our first yes. Yeah. Well, in a middle house. Talk of, would you like to say the difference between middle house? Get, let's get into that. What is a middle house? Well, a middle house in the uh, 
the union sense uh -huh. is uh, any theater that's over 299 seats and under 500 seats. And uh, the middle house is a, another step up in expense as well because you then get into higher pay scales for the actors, the rents are higher, union conditions are usually a little more stringent, you have more unions to deal with, not as many as on Broadway, but you do have that. And uh, so the expense of those shows are more expensive than the pure off-Broadway shows that are between 199 seats and 299 seats. Gotcha. But I must tell you, Morton, that uh, just in, within a year after I produced uh, Taking My Turn, which was a musical, which is usually much more expensive than straight plays, we were budgeted at 300000 yeah. and came in at two twenty-nine. Mm -hmm. If I had to do it now again, I'd need another 100000 just a year later to do yeah. the very same show. Ah, that's amazing how fast that yeah. We were talking, Dash and I, about uh, something which, which she thinks is probably unprecedented, which was the Night Mother, Norma, uh, well, Marsha Norman's play, came to uh, Broadway in the smallest house on Broadway, probably ought not to have been on Broadway because it could run for a long, long time off Broadway, but I think there was a matter of pride involved in, 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 in wanting to get on Broadway. In any event, perhaps for the first time in history, that play has gone from Broadway to off-Broadway, right. and, and I think probably will have a whole new life. Yes, mm. right. And, and, another and, uh, year. Maybe yes. that's a healthy well, sign that we can do both, that we I can go backward as well as forward in terms of up and down and I'm, expense. I'm very curious to see that. Of course, there's always the lure of having a play open off-Broadway and then bringing it onto Broadway. And there are a lot of plays, I feel, that should really stay off-Broadway because it's a different type of audience and maybe it's a, it, it, there is an advantage to some plays staying off-Broadway and running on and on and on. Um, I am very curious to see what's going to happen. I had thought about doing that with Master Harold and the Boys, which was a success and yet I think it would have reached another type of an audience had we moved that play. Uh, to off-Broadway. Fortunately, now we're doing extremely well on the road, and it's still a very, very strong play. But I see now where a lot of plays that were in the theater are even coming back. There's a play, well, Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures is playing at a little church up mm -hmm. in uh, the Church of the Heavenly Rest, I believe, uptown. A big church, a little production. Yes, but a small production. Thank you, Brendan. And, uh, now what's happening, I know there's a lot of talk of moving that play from the church to find a home for it. Well, it won't probably go to Broadway, but here is a play that opened. It was a wonderful play, closed, did not get the reviews that it should have received, and now it will probably be coming back. So I think there's a whole different It should scope go to the promenade. Well, the promenade, which is on Broadway in 76th and has been really redone wonderfully, yeah. and if Pacific Overtures were there, the way that theater is structured, it would enhance the nature of, of that production. But it's, it's really an, an off-Broadway theater but like that. What is, <laughs> what is the advantage of, of uh, the middle theater? Are you, do, do you like it well, since it's been introduced into the contract? Oh, absolutely. It, it really deals with shows that are a little bit too expensive to run in 299-seat houses. You don't have the commercial appeal uh, to be able to go into a Broadway situation. So it, it serves a function in that it uh, allows you to do a play still a lot less expensively than on Broadway, but a little bit more expensively than in the normal off-Broadway situation. But Marty, could they afford to put that in the promenade with so many people up there? It's not no, but costing the, the, anything. The production doesn't have all that many people. Uh, how many does uh, live? Right. 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 It must have at least 12. 
Oh, it well, has that. Yeah, it yes. does. You, you well, but the promenade has uh, 381 Broadway. seats, That's or 391 right. seats, something like that, which is not enough, meaning it's not 499, and it has the same wage scales as a 499 yeah. seat theater, but it's more than 299. But I just meant from the creative standpoint, that wonderful thrust mm -hmm. stage that the promenade has, this marvelous semi-amphitheater mm -hmm. feeling. That's where Godspell played yeah, for all those years. Uh -huh. and, uh, How could the little theaters on Theater Row with, with the uh, well, those th those are something else, that, yeah. because we'll those... We'll talk about that. How, well, how well, could they be feasible? Did, well, you did well, play. Uh, no, I didn't do any on the 42nd Street, mm -hmm. but uh, they, uh, they are really workshop theaters. They're under 100 seats, uh, classified by Actors' Equity as workshop theaters, and uh, they're there for very uh, small productions that are still finding their way. It's a step above a workshop, but this, this is what is known as showcase. Or situation. even with the, with the Beckett Rockabye, it, it, that that's as big a theater as that ought to be in. It, it's one it, person right. yes, playing arc two is, tiny little, right. three little things. And yet you, there are situations. And, and, and you look at Sam Shepard's play, Fool yeah. for Love, which is in a small theater at the Douglas right. Fairbanks, right. I believe, and it's going right. on and on right. and on. Now, no one has picked up that play right. and moved it to a larger theater. It needs the confines. Right. It needs right. the intimacy. That's that a 199-seat house. That right. The Fantastics has been running, what, 21 years now? Exactly. Because it's a nice time. Kind of but ninety-nine seats. Jerry Orbach began as a very right. young man. Now he's gray-haired. You see, in some ways, with the change of attitude about uh, nothing, it's not an insult anymore yeah, to be seen in a non-Broadway theater or even in a hundred-seat theater. Right. Or that Sam Shepard, one of the leading, most talented writers in America today, is not compelled to have to be seen in a thousand-seat theater. And this is a whole new concept that's going on, not only from the standpoint of the creative people, but the public as well. And it's all dictated by the economics. And uh, if we want to go back, say, 40 years, many of the plays that are part of the history and the, the literature of the American theater may never have run more than four weeks on Theater Guild subscription in the old days, but that we look upon them as having been enormously successful plays. In those days, as you know, if a play or a show ran 100 performances, it was a hit, meaning 12 weeks. Well. Nothing can get its money back anymore in 12 no. weeks. I think John so, Barrymore's Hamlet only ran about, uh, you know, a few weeks comparatively. Right. It was the best Hamlet we've ever seen. And they were able to get their money back, and they may have toured a bit. And the attitude of the public then was that you went to see what you felt like seeing, and not everybody rushed to see it. You see, but and the play could have got. Let's talk only about plays or new plays. The play could have got its money back, run a while, maybe it toured for a few months afterwards, and everybody was happy with it, and they went on to the next production. Today, because a, a play cannot reach the lowest common denominator audience, it can't stay alive. And what you were saying about Night Mother, Night Mother, years ago wouldn't have run as long as it did on Broadway now, and it, but it would have got its money back. I don't know if it got its money back yeah. on Broadway, but in today's concept, with the dictates of the economics, just the cost of advertising in the New York Times, or in all the papers with ABCs, it's out of proportion to what the 
production can stand. So therefore, some plays that cannot reach the lowest common denominator audience should not go to Broadway, where everybody makes money except the author and the producer and the investors. Well, tell me uh, one thing I forgot to ask you. you. You were at Yale as a young man, as an undergraduate. You were, had an enormous private income. You were always very wealthy, and that's why you became a producer. Is that right? That's part <laughs> I became a producer because at the age of five, I said I wanted to be a producer. Because my uncle Jake Oppenheimer owned the Lyric Theater on 42nd Street, which is known as the most beautiful theater in New York, and is going to come back as a legit theater. And if you look at the facade of that theater on the 43rd Street side, you'll see one of the most exciting looking theaters, and if you go inside too. And Uncle Jake had booked into that theater shows like the Marx Brothers and the Coconuts and Rio Rita and Cole Porter's 50 Million Frenchmen and uh, Frimmel's uh, Three Musketeers, which they're reviving. And I used to sit in the box office before the show started. We'd go every Saturday, Wednesday and Saturday, Saturday night, yeah. at the age of four, <laughs> and sit in the manager's office during intermission and in Groucho Marx's dressing room after the show, or <laughs> go to see the George White scandals and sit in Harry Richmond's dressing room. And I met Ziegfeld and George White and uh, uh, Earl Carroll at their various shows and said I wanted to be a producer. It's it incurable in yeah. So at Yale, I, because I wanted to be a Broadway producer, I founded the Yale Film Society. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Morty, keep going. Then you came out of Yale, and how did you... And then I became a press agent. Yes. Right. Well, right. no, actually, I first worked at Columbia Pictures Story Department. Then I was a critic on the Bayonne Facts, a drama critic, and would get free passes to shows. You see, that's the best... Better part. than Press and Boy, I suppose. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I became a press agent, and I took the job as a press agent because I figured this is how I can get one foot in the door and I worked for Dorothy Ross, who years later became my press agent. Um, how did you, how does one there. get one foot in the door now? No. Can I answer that? Yeah. Yes. I, and I started working with Morty, and he was my ad, my advisor and my teacher well, on the same time out there next asking year. Well, all right, we'll, we'll get back to that. <laughs> See, but, yeah. It is much but, harder today. But, but now, among, among producers, uh, uh, you do have to have a firm grasp of what could be kindly called. Uh, the facts of life e economically, and you're quite celebrated. You're almost well, a legend of well, being well, I went from being a press money. agent. I used that as a way of pushing my way into becoming a manager, and I became a company manager. Uh, I was the first one to get into the Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers under a new clause called the New Blood Clause, which doesn't exist anymore, where uh, but I'd already functioned, uh, well, I've got to go back just a bit. I was Gertrude Lawrence's press agent, and through her met Dick Aldrich, her husband. They ran the Cape Playhouse at Dennis. When it reopened after World War II in 46, I went to work there. But Dick also got me, and I was doing free pu publicity work for Theatre Incorporated when it first got started, publicizing, promoting them, the first active non-profit tax-exempt organization in America. Uh, Anta was founded before them, but didn't do anything. But Theatre Inc. did something right away, meaning Gertrude Lawrence's production of uh, Pygmalion, followed by the first Old Vic visit to America, with Olivier doing his Oedipus, and Ralph Richardson doing Falstaff, and all that. And I promoted the Old Vic and Theatre Incorporated. I wasn't the union press agent. Bill Fields was the union press agent. And incidentally, I tried to get the New York Times to spell Vic from Old Vic without a V-I-C-K at the end. So <laughs> couldn't get the New York Times to leave out the K. <laughs> You're lucky they didn't put an S on. I know. <laughs> a lot of anyway, so from publicity, I became a manager. 
and then became a company manager, then became a general manager for Gilbert Miller and various others and the American Shakespeare Festival Theater, always looking for the day I'd become a producer. Yeah. And I became a producer when my very good friend Marlon Brando said, listen, why don't you become a producer? So I left Gilbert Miller, and we did a tour of Arms and the Man, which he starred in, and I paid him $125 a week, and Billy Redfield $1,000 a week. And Marlon was a giant star at that point, and that's how I became a producer. Did a couple of other things, went back to general managing, and then met Helen Bonfice, whom I'd known before in my Gilbert Miller days. I was her general manager for a, a bit. She said, look, why don't you produce a show I know you want to produce. I'll put up all the money for it. And we did Enter Laughing and it ran a year. And is it true that, that you prefer two character plays with one set for the <laughs> No, I Enter Laughing, which had a revolving stage, stage two yeah. wagons, and 19 equity. Uh, uh, but then how did you <laughs> learn this new economics that you are reputed to practice? I do want to tell you something, that when you do a play with two, two people, you're usually going to pay them in total, more than you would 10, 15 actors at <laughs> Yes, Isabel, what would you like I to would, say? I want to ask Millie, uh, how do you feel about the media? Do you, do you feel that it, it is worth going into television? Do you have to go into television on a show? Do you, do you allocate monies for that and so much for advertising and I, so much for television? And how much is that? I think if you have a musical, you are practically 100% obliged to have a television commercial because uh, those people watch television a lot. They, uh, the latest survey was seven hours a day. What was the musical that was made by, uh, was it Pippin? Pippin. I was the press agent on oh, Pippin. Yeah. Well, apparently the, TV the commercial was so powerful. Pippin no. did not get great, great notices. No. But that TV And when commercial. was the commercial? How many months after you had opened? Months after. Yes, about yeah. seven or eight months yeah. after. Yeah, when the commercial, it was yes. nervously, ner yes. nervously going Fosse, on. Yeah. Uh, um, Fosse created new... that commercial. That's right. It wasn't even a part of the show. Yeah. And then, and then they then put that into the show later? No. Is that part, of, of, is that part of your planning with Vic and with you at, at the beginning you of the no. TV commercial? I don't no. think no. TV no. commercials no. were An ad schedule. An ad schedule. But for a play, it's a little different than for a musical. Mm -hmm. Because it takes a certain kind of play, maybe something like Dracula, where you have you know, something very identifiable, where a TV commercial would work very well. But I think, by and large, for a play, it is very difficult, very, very difficult, to get an effective uh, television commercial. It's a strange one for Awake and Sing, because the idea that uh, a radio commercial at any rate is that this family is like your own family, and you're supposed to find this dreadful family heartwarming. <laughs> <laughs> I would think anything would be guaranteed to keep you away from a play if people told you that that was like my family. You know what a play has to do to get on television? It has to have Millie Schoenbaum thinking up stunts. We'll tell you about stunts we pulled at the same time next year in romantic comedy, and we were on the TV news all the time with these stunts. But you were rolling at that time. I'm talking True. about the very beginning. I'm talking about, yes, that's Name right. Name a stunt. What do you mean by right. stunt? Okay, we had Sandy Dennis. Sandy Dennis is a cat person. She has 38 cats. So we worked out an auction in front of the theater, under the marquee, on a matinee day with the, uh, uh, what was the organization? It was more than an auction. What was the organization? 
Well, your humane society. <laughs> and terrible. there they were with all these cats on display for a week in the lobby of the, the theater, rain. and people could come and decide how much they wanted to pay for these cats to get them off the streets and out of the humane society. And it broke. Uh, all the TV news. And then you got cat food also. That, then a year <laughs> later, we had Hope Lang in it, and she had a dog, so we did it with dogs. A year later, we had uh, Betsy Palmer. Betsy Palmer with the That's what and I was going to say. Morty. Morty. Yep. How many tickets did all of that sell? Well, we ran four years. We don't know. <laughs> but it was you cheaper than so, having a, a TV commercial. So that commercial. publicity and that public relations is important. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, now, I want to say one thing. What you were asking you before, one... before we get these questions, this will be an answer. Some. Will it be a short? It's pa no. Packaging <laughs> and marketing uh -huh. is what we're talking about at that point. Uh -huh. And one of a producer's functions, and his main function, is, takes place from the day after the play is opened. And he has to have a point of view of packaging and marketing the show. What do you sell? When Gigi, when I was the general manager for Gigi with Audrey Hepburn, the unknown girl, in 1951, she did not get really good reviews, but we had to go through with our plan to make her a star and put her name over the title, and we packaged and marketed this unknown 20-year-old girl, Audrey Hepburn, and made her a star. We forgot about Anita Luce and Colette. We just concentrated on her. And Millie Schoenbaum was an expert on packaging and marketing. Think about one other question. What what is most important to you? I know the times, but how do you how do you work around the times if you? Lou Smith's column. Yeah. Okay. So keep the going. Photos. And what the, about the, television reviews? How, where do they fit? Everything counts. They're, today. They're everything. Counts. You can't they're do without anything. Okay. All right. We're going now to go to open this two questions, and please come up quickly and uh, tell us who your question is going to be addressed to. Okay, good afternoon. My name is Robert Ader. I'm an actor, writer, and soon-to-be producer. Uh, the uh, question is to the producers or anyone else on the panel who wants to answer it. Uh, it's a two-part question. First of all, how does one structure a backers audition for a non-musical? And uh, if you are a first-time producer and you don't have rich friends, where do you find potential investors? Uh, Millie, answer that. <laughs> I said they're both very good questions. Thank I you. don't know where you find people with money because, uh, you know, with money that would also you have to be the kind of person to approach somebody with a very positive attitude toward what you're presenting. Uh, some people are very good at that. I hope you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex Cohn recently took an ad in Playbill. Yeah. A full-page ad looking for investors. Yeah, and Hal Prince, with his great success in the past, had always had trouble getting investors. I'm told he would have his. Well, sometimes he did, and uh, hundred hundred people would have to be found. Well, we have 117 on uh, Dancing in the End Zone. You do. Also, in the are, are they the same ones, ones that you've had before? Do they come back? Most of them. Some are new ones. Uh -huh. Some of the old ones have died. Uh, also, that, uh, in the know, Wall Street uh, Journal, uh, there was an ad, uh, yeah. and also yeah. Variety and the trade magazines have little notices of where a production or a uh, backer's audition is going to be. Every doctor and radiologist in New York has extra money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> every orthodontist is back of Thank you. 
choreograph a film. The first part of the question is also, <laughs> also interests me. Of how do you structure a Bacchus audition for a non-musical? I don't have Do you do the, uh, the entire play? Uh, do you have a reading or should you have a performance? or uh, what you think I better? think the worst thing is to have a reading, as I was saying before, mm -hmm. because what happens is the stage manager is saying, she picks up the telephone, and one of the actors there oh, and picks up the phone. So then he says, she puts down the phone. The readings, I think, can ruin everything. If uh, I think what you try to do is make sure you have a play that you think will appeal to certain people who have money, or get a star, or get a director who has some kind of reputation. But on the, the, the important thing is to have the play, to get to a, agent. A, an agent who has a play that you feel says something different and says something theatrical and says something that pertains to the, the world today and make sure it's not a play that presents a problem the audience knows before it walks into the theater and leaves the theater having gotten nowhere with no right. point of view. <laughs> you see, the problem with plays today is that the playwrights are not philosophers and they're not poets. They don't give you one little shaft of light at the end of the tunnel so you walk out of the theater knowing how you can improve your life. They tell you what you, you know before right you know Hi, my name is Tim Archie. My question is for Richard Cedar. What are the skills needed to be a good general manager? Skills needed to be a good general manager? Many, many skills. First of all, I think you have to have a sense of business, number one, of finance, number two, very strongly an ability to get along with people. I think that's very, very important because you are very, have to be very diplomatic along the way without antagonizing people in uh, adversary situations. But ba basically, I think you really have to have some kind of background in, in business and business uh, affairs. Thank you. Is there a union? There is indeed a union for company managers as press agents. It's the same union, Association of uh, Theatrical Press Agents. How do you managers. get into that? Well, there is an apprentice program. Uh, each year, they bring in a number of people who are submitted by producers or general managers. And uh, the other way is if they organize theaters that have not been under union jurisdiction, they take the people who are operating those theaters in with them. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mel Friedman, playwright and librettist. And I'd like to direct this question to Dasha Epstein. Do you and other Broadway producers go out of town to regional theaters to see plays for possible Broadway production? Very often, the play that I did weekend near Madison came from Louisville and the festival there, and I spend a lot of time doing that and also going to workshops and to readings that are in this vicinity and out of town. Uh, I'm on my way up to uh, Yale to see a play yeah. that... Tell uh, that story about Louisville and the Haven yesterday. Well, I think they're two separate stories, Brennan, but I went down to Louisville last year and saw a play that I like very much. And at that particular moment, it hit me I wanted to do that play. I was moved emotionally. I felt involved with the play. It was called Weekend Near Madison. I was leaving the day after to go over to London to see something over there. And when I saw the play, I went directly to the... I did not know who the agent was. I did not know the writer, and I, nor did I know the director. All I knew was I liked what I had seen. I went directly to them, sat down and talked to them, and said, I love your play. I want to do it. I said, here is $2,000. I'm on my way tomorrow. I don't know what you're going to do with it. I trusted them. I said, I'll see you when I come back. Give me the name of your agent. I'll call her tomorrow, tell her what I did, and let's talk. If you want to hold it and you get other offers, whatever it may be, let's go with, I'd like to go with the play. I went to London. I came back a week later, and on my desk were these wonderful reviews for the play and about five or six other letters from different various producers who wanted to do the play with me. 
At that point, I called up. I said, congratulations to the author and to the director. Congratulations. I think it's wonderful, the reviews that you've gotten. Now, where do I stand? I know you have a lot of different offers. They said, well, you had the guts to go with your conviction, and you like the play. We want to go with you. Well, I did the play here in New York. I did it off-Broadway, which was the first play I did off-Broadway. The reviews there were spectacular. It opened here. We had to close the play, unfortunately, in two weeks or three weeks. The reviews were completely different that, uh, here. I don't think there was that much of a change in the play, but it is the difference in locale, in location. Something sometimes works out of town, sometimes gets great reviews, changes when it comes here in New York. You cannot be guaranteed that if you get a good review in regional or out of town reviews. But yes, your answer to go into it is, I do go. For example, I called Yale the other day, Lloyd Richards, who did Master Harold and the boys who directed that, and Athel Fugard's, uh, Fugard's play, Master Harold, has done a new play called Ma Rainey, which was reviewed in the Times yesterday, a brilliant review. I called up, I said, gee, I'd love to come see that play over the weekend. I'll be up in the country. They said, Dasha, there are about 30 producers coming to New York. So as soon as something gets a terrific review, it's a security. It's every producer wants to. It's, it's scary to take risks What's, today. Well, why I connected the two stories is because they proved that producers are sheep, just like all no, the rest of us. No, they do go out. That's, That's true. true. And it takes a lot of guts to take something new and to try to do it. Uh, my name is Neil Weissman. I'm a director. I have a question for Mitchell Douglas and Dasha Epstein. What qualities do you look for before you give an OK or a blessing to a given director? To a, to a director? To a director. Now, there's one you'd hire or one you'd advise your, your client to work with. Keep in mind that the, that the producer hires. What I look for is uh, a shared vision, the same vision for the production of the play. I want to be sure that the playwright and the director are compatible. I think that's very important, and that was proven yesterday when we had directors and writers here. I think it's very difficult to work with a writer who has one feeling about a play or a different approach to a play. The interpretation. The, the work has to be a joint effort, and I tend to look, I always look for that, hope for that. Thank you. My name is Mary Miller, and I was wondering, Mr. Gottlieb, could you expand a bit more on the company aspect? You actually answered my question about beginnings, but that company is sort of where I am now. With, what do you have company do you mean? The legal you company? No, when you said you started with a company, or you, you'd moved up to a certain stage, you had a company. Uh, did that include actors, writers, directors? No, he said no, a company no. manager. He said he oh, went company press manager. Agent. No, that's, that's what, what you're talking about, a member of the union. Mm -hmm. I had been a press agent, as I was saying, but I didn't want to be a press agent. Mm -hmm. I only did it as a way of getting both feet in the door and getting uh, <laughs> producers and other people who were in the Broadway theater to know me on a professional basis so that I could convince them I was responsible enough to become a manager. And as I was saying, uh, I met Gertrude Lawrence and her husband, and I had worked with them, and then Dick Aldrich hired me to be the general manager at the Cape Playhouse and hired me to be a company manager on a play of Theatre Incorporated. And I got into the union as a company manager of a play there. But he wouldn't have known me if I hadn't been a press agent and worked for them and he had confidence in me to, be, to move what I considered up to being a company manager and then became a general manager. My name is Alan Jordan, and as an uh, established author of business and a, a beginning playwright, I'm kind of interested in knowing what characteristics make it apparent that a play is uh, producible. And I thought I'd just leave it an open, directed question. 
Well, Morty has already answered that pretty well. I well, think. there We're is sure. one thing I didn't say after okay. that. I, uh, I'm in the theater for myself, per personally and primarily. In other words, this is what I want to do. This is what I've chosen to do. And when I read a play, I can usually decide by the time I finish reading the play that I want to do the play. I only do one play at a time, and I do very few in the course of a lifetime or a decade. Uh, I do maybe an average of two every three years. And some of them have run for many years, or you try to promote them into running longer than they should. Uh, but what I do is I decide on what I feel like devoting my life to at a particular time. And so I have no set rules about the subject matter necessarily, except that I like, and I'm always looking for a play that deals with the corridors of power. You don't find many plays anymore. You find more movies that may deal with the corridors of power, uh, to steal a title from C.P. Snow. And when I only select what I feel like devoting my emotion, my time, and whatever pro professional activity I may have at a particular time. It could be a serious play. Uh, hopefully it's, it's got humor, because I think everything should have humor. When you consider the first act of Watch on the Rhine is more laughs than Three Men and a Horse, you know, everything should have humor. And uh, Macbeth has laughs. But I only pick what I feel like working on at a particular time, and hopefully it's going to say something in a way that deals with our lives and the world today. And hopefully it has a plot and a beginning, middle, and end, and character development. I also, can I ask a question? Can I answer part of this also? When I see a play, I have to feel an involvement. I have to feel moved. There is an emotional impact, whether it's fear, or whether it's laughter, or whether it's whatever emotion will grip me, I will say, all right, I am completely, totally involved in that. And I remember seeing Whose Life Is It Anyway, which was a play I was involved in. And everybody said to me, Dasha, you're crazy, because it's a, it's a subject matter that is not going to appeal to a lot of people. And I saw that play with Tom Conti in London, and we had a struggle with equity to get Tom Conti to do, a, to do the play over here. And the impact, the emotional impact, watching that audience react, took your breath away. There was silence. There was absolutely a total involvement. And I think if you can get that, even if you get somebody, there's an energy that comes out of it. And that's what I personally look for in a play. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I only have a few seconds to, uh, for a Vita and uh, inquiry, so I'll make it uh, kind of snappy. I'm an, uh, Norm W. Berg is the name. I'm an ex-filmmaker doing uh, audiovisual theater. Um, I worked with Marshall McLuhan in the 60s and early 70s. And the question, oh, uh, I'm going, um, the intention is to go around uh, to uh, educational institutions, the universities and colleges, with uh, multimedia theater. Uh, the question is, um, I guess the inquiry is, uh, who is a topical packager and marketer for this application in this kind of theater? Marketer and packager? Multimedia theater? Yeah, I'm not concerned with so much um, uh, money, in fact. Uh, can one go, in fact, uh, into that situation with, uh, with uh, just the transportation and, and expenses? I think you people know more about that. Uh, that's a, that's, that's a large like, question. Multimedia theater, uh, a, a concept of using audiovisual for uh, stage oh, designing. Like, uh, what was that New York at St. James that ran a week? Uh, yeah. I don't know that there is a particular organization that could 
specialize in that kind of book. I think that, that really should be something to be discussed after the program because it, it, yeah. it's such depth yeah. on it. Perhaps we can find out for you and uh, the people on the panel might be able to help you with it. But I don't think off the top of the head this is not a group that would be familiar with it at this point. But it'll certainly help if we can afterwards. Is there a important question I wanted to ask Morning, which I think is very interesting to me at least, and that is how in the world would you dare to say that you would only do new plays given that 99% of of all that we have in all of the arts is what has been done in the past, but you just don't believe in doing uh, revivals. Well, there are no subsidiary rights. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Herman on, uh, on the, the uh, seminar last uh, fall said that uh, he would like to see a two-character musical. There have been some. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but I thought of you immediately. Have you ever thought well, of that? Because uh, uh, yeah. do I do? No, uh, no. But has Morty ever thought of doing it? What I do, I do. Oh no! Well, people have come to us about doing a musical at the same time. Uh -huh. I always thought it was too soon, and I don't know that I want to. But people have submitted whole scores. <laughs> of songs for a musical at the same time. It's the musical of Sleuth we have to do. <laughs> and one other. Sleuth. You have another question, quickly. Quickly. I'm Barbara Barandis, and I have a new nonprofit foundation for the performing arts. My question is since the nonprofit theater groups in the last 10 years have so often fed the Broadway theater with new plays, actors, and directors, wouldn't it be an advantage for Broadway producers to? help a little to support the nonprofit. Yes, they do, by taking them to Broadway and then paying royalties back and giving those authors. Yes, uh, but I don't mean that. I mean support the nonprofit theaters to exist in their experiment. That True. Would, it it is very difficult that would today, particularly, to raise money for a nonprofit. No, I agree with you in theory, and I think some of the Broadway producers mm -hmm. should, but yes. some of them need more money themselves. If you're talking about the theater owners, the Schubert Foundation does help finance. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, but uh, they usually uh, ask you to be in operation for three years before. Well, so, in, does uh, uh, so does the government. Can, uh, so does the United States government. The government yes, and the state. And so is the government. Yeah. So for the first three years, you have to struggle, and if you're not lucky enough, to have the money to put in yourself. No, it is very tricky. It's the same as doing money. something on a commercial basis. Yes. Now, well, I since do want we're going into the third year, yeah. I think we'll have a chance. Yes. But I just wanted to know. Well, what you have to do is then find some wealthy people Thank who you, would Barbara. take a tax deduction and give you money in the first couple of years. Well, then <laughs> you go back on the front. Thank yes, you very much. I could be very glib about it, and I do think that it is true that the uh, nonprofit and institutional theaters have contributed a lot to the Broadway theater, and I think not enough. When you consider how many millions of dollars are spent throughout the country on uh, uh, the productions, and how many plays are done, and how many new shows and showcases and I have workshops. to interrupt you again. Why? I'm so, why? Because they say that the program has to end almost now. And well, I have and to say finish. that this is the American Theater Wing <laughs> seminars on working in the theater, and it is about one of the American Theater Wing's year-round programs, which the Wing is possibly best known for the Tonys, but we do much more than that. We are an organization that brings theater to Saturday on, on to school children on Saturday mornings. We bring live professional theater into hospitals. We bring the seminars here twice a year where the most gifted and the most talented of, of people in the theater contribute their time and services to you, to the audience. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing. 
I thank you as an audience for coming, and I can't thank the panelists enough. I constantly am thanking you. Yeah, no, 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 no